yourself walking home and there are three helicopters that appear out of nowhere over your head and you 
stuff again with uh, my friend uh, who will give his name now. Uh, Jay King. Jay Artist. King. Artist. And we we're talking and uh, <clears throat> something I want to say today and Jay King wanted to know and I'm going to share it. So in 1998 I decided to take a vacation to Montreal, Canada. So I went to this club on St. Laurent Street in Montreal and it rained like you couldn't believe that night. So I went back in my car, past the sobriety checkpoint. The police, Canadian police saw me. They looked at me, they said, okay, keep going. 10 blocks later, my car is almost swipe swipe, forced to the curb by two men in a Ford Arrow Star van. Now this is at two o'clock in the morning. I roll down my passenger windows. Guy walks over to my window and says to me, Muhammad, is that you? I said, no, my name is not Muhammad. I don't know who you're waiting for, but I'm not Muhammad. He says, who are you? I said, who are you? So he says, let me see your ID. I said, not till you show me yours. He shows me his ID. I then show him mine. All of a sudden, the guy gets out of the other side of the four hours to the van, points a machine gun at me and says, can you now open up the car door? We want to search your car. I says, for what? They said, you fit the profile of a terrorist. I said, really? I said, you guys stopped me at 2 o'clock in the morning and called me Muhammad. I said, and I fit the, the role of a terrorist? So now they search my car, find nothing. And I said to the guy, I'm never going to forget your face. He laughed at me. He said, nobody's going to believe you. I said, you know what? I hope I never see you again. Well, the next day I go back to customs at the Montreal border. And I tell the U.S. Customs officers what had happened. They said to me, those guys are acting illegally. Three years later, on 2001, on December 27th, the FBI posted a photo on the 6 o'clock news of five men they were looking for that were in connection possibly with the 9-11 World Trade Center buildings coming down. Two of the five guys in the photo I recognized from Stop Me in 98. I called the FBI, they said I was mistaken. I went to the FBI office, they said I was mistaken. Ten years later, I'm still being followed. The assistant directors follow me and the, the, the main director, Tamaris, and uh, the other guy, Muller, are following me in front of Madison Square Garden and harassing me. So from 2010, they, they brought up the harassment made it more and more difficult for me to even exist as a person because there's a record of me at the Canadian border that I made a complaint about some terrorists and that I am saying that they are part of the plot to bring the buildings down. So who is a threat to America? I am. 9-11 is an inside job. You can't have your cake and eat it too and expect me to go down to the 9-11 and have to pay to see that memorial. What's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with that picture, brother? With that said, I'll pray for this country that they get it right. But that's the story, whether you like it or not. It's the truth. I am the $25 million man. I'm the one who is going to put an end to the fake Obama, Osama legacy. Osama is Obama, brother. Check it out. Go to my site, youtube.com forward slash Obama is Osama. No shit.
you got the real deal. So before you guys try to close my eyes, I'm taking a lot of you moles with me. Later. On September the 11th, 2001, the firefighters of New York were faced with the biggest fires in American history. I was thinking that I don't know if we could put this fire out. I don't know how big it is, but I knew we had a lot of people there, a lot of people trapped in the building, trapped above, and we had to get there to try to save them, to try to get them out. Where are you trapped at, sir? Okay, and there are people in the stairwell? And you said there's about 75 people? Okay, in the stairwell. All right, sir. I'm gonna try to get you some help there as soon as possible. At no other time in history has a skyscraper fire presented fire chiefs with such complex decisions than those they were faced with on September the 11th, 2001. What is your last name, sir? Okay, what's the telephone number that you're calling from now? Don't know. Okay, it helps us. That's why I'm... Are there any injuries upstairs? Some more, uh, a wet towel, a rag or something under the door there, so to stop the smoke from coming in. Okay. Okay. Hold on a second. Hold on, I'm going to connect, connect you to the fire department. We got on the fire truck and we made our way to the World Trade Center site. Uh, it was relatively traffic free until we got to the city hall area. The only traffic we encountered at that point was hundreds of people running away from the World Trade Center. So we had to weave our fire truck through them. We raced across the bridge and we're at the World Trade Center in, in no more than five minutes from Brooklyn. We have a number of floors on fire. It looked like the plane was aiming towards the building. Transmit a third alarm. As the firefighters arrived at the Twin Towers, they had no idea of the enormity of the task that lay ahead of them. We pull our fire truck right in front of the building. As we got off, pieces of the building started falling and hit our fire truck. So we retreated underneath the pedestrian bridge. We kept looking up and we didn't see anything coming down. We'd run to the fire truck, get some tools and run back. And we did that two or three times. We got the tools that we needed and we sprinted to the front of the building. The aircraft had punched a hole through eight floors of the building and flooded the tower with 10,000 gallons of jet fuel. The resulting fireball created massive fires that instantly raged out of control. The firefighters were facing unknown territory, the task of having more than 17,000 people to save from the inferno. You take your normal high-rise fire, but then you take the magnitude of the event that occurred that day, which really out of the realm that I think any department anywhere was really prepared to handle. It certainly was overwhelming for us. The complexity of the challenge that were faced with us was something we had never um, faced before. With little idea of the magnitude of the fire inside the North Tower, the New York firefighters had no option but to rely on their intuition. As we uh, arrived at the, uh, the front door, there was two badly burned people right at the front door. 
and I was faced with my first decision of the day. Do we stop and save these people, or do we go upstairs and help a thousand people? And as they were about to proceed, the situation became even more dangerous. At 9.03 a.m., a second plane hit. In the space of a few minutes, they'd gone from fighting the biggest skyscraper fire in history to the two biggest fires in history. The demeanor in the lobby changed immediately, and uh, you could have heard a pin drop in the lobby. And uh, one of the firemen from Rescue One uh, looked up, he says, we may not live through today. And we all looked at him and we acknowledged his statement. He said, you know what, you're right. And we took the time to shake each other's hands and wish each other good luck and we hope we see you later. They had no way of knowing that their building was about to collapse too. We got down to about the 16th floor. This, everything stopped. No one was moving anymore. Everyone was just at a standstill. Because further down, when that south tower collapsed, when it hit the bottom, it mushroomed back up and all that debris broke into the North Tower and clogged up the stairwell somewhere below us. Many of the firemen had started to evacuate, but progress was painfully slow. The sheer volume of people trying to get out and debris from the South Tower were blocking the exits. Now our descent was very slow. We just keep going down the stairs. It's like water torture, just one step at a time, and you're counting the floors as you're going down. By now, conditions in the lobby of the North Tower had forced Chief Hayden to leave the building. We couldn't stay there. It was untenable. Uh, and we were out, we entered out onto West Street, um, and I was actually on West Street um, when the North Tower came down. I remember the shaking almost a, a split second before I heard it. You know, I, I felt it. I just dove for the stairwell and I, I covered my head. You couldn't run, you couldn't do anything. You, could, you, you couldn't even stand up. You, try, you keep, keep on trying to get to your feet. You could hear the sounds of metal twisting around you. And as the collapse got closer, it got louder and louder and louder. You're being thrown down, the wind is pushing you down, the wind is like a, like a hurricane, gale force winds. You couldn't run far enough or fast enough. Uh, those buildings came down 110 stories in less than 10 seconds. Uh, I actually crawled under a, a pumper and just, you know, just waited for it to end. We were still alive. I thought to myself, oh, I can't believe we just survived that. Minutes after the collapse of the North Tower, 
a handful of men found themselves trapped inside the rubble. It wasn't readily apparent what we did survive. You know, you're looking around and we're surrounded, you know, part of the stairway's intact, part of it isn't. We could see walls of twisted steel around us. poked my head out and um, I couldn't believe what I saw. It looked like New York had just been wiped off the map. Anything that wasn't steel or paper was pulverized. The biggest office buildings in the world, there was no desks, no phones, no computers, nothing discernible left in the rubble. After uh, Captain Jonas got out, he came over and uh, reported to me. Uh, it was one of the few bright moments, of the only bright moment of the day, uh, that to see his face, you know, and, and uh, see that somebody got out alive. One of the few came out of the collapse. Long before the first black slaves arrived in America, white slavery was already there in the early days of the British colonies. In the 1600s, the British 13 colonies created a huge demand for labor. This was at a time when Britain was suffering from a large number of unemployed poor people living in the urban areas. Displaced from their land and not being able to find work in the cities, many of these people signed contracts of indenture and took a one-way boat trip to the Americas. Between 1609 until the early 1800s, from a half to two-thirds of all the white colonists who came to the New World came as slaves, who cleared the forests, drained the swamps, built the roads, sweated in the fields, and died in hellish factories. They worked and died in greater number than anyone else. Of the passengers on the Mayflower, 12 were white slaves. Since they had no rights, fugitive slaves laws applied to them whenever they fled their masters. The white slaves of Britain were considered as its unwanted surplus population and thus was so easily expendable. 1641, Massachusetts became the first colony to recognize slavery as a legal institution. Indenture contracts were alienable, the ownership of which could easily be transferred like that of any other commodity. As with slaves, ownership changed without their participation in discussion concerning that transfer. The European establishment coined the word indentured servitude 
Webster's Dictionary says the meaning of servitude is the state of being a slave. If any slave resists his master's correcting such slave and shall happen to be killed in such correction, the master shall be free of all punishment. In the British West Indies, plantation slavery was instituted as early as 1627. In Barbados, by the 1640s, there were an estimated 25,000 slaves, of whom 21,700 were white. White indentured servants were employed and treated incidentally exactly like slaves. England's next door neighbor, Ireland, quickly became the biggest source of human livestock for English merchants. From 1641 to 1652, over 500,000 Irish were killed by the English and another 300,000 were sold as slaves. The Irish population fell from one and a half million to 600,000 within a decade. Irish fathers were not allowed to take their wives and children on their voyage across the Atlantic, ripping families apart. In 1650, over 100,000 Irish children between the ages of 10 and 14 years of age were taken from their parents. These young children were then shipped to work for the English settlers in the West Indies, Virginia, and the rest of New England. In the same decade, 52,000 Irish women and children were sold to Barbados and Virginia. The list goes on and on. The legal form of contracted indentured servitude was just in reality a lifetime form of slavery. The center of the trade in child slaves was in the port cities of Britain and Scotland. Press gangs were hired by local merchants to roam the street, seizing young boys by force for the slave trade. Children were driven in groups through the town and confined for shipment in barns. What was outrageous was the fact that white children were openly seized from orphanages and workhouses and made to work in factories for up to 16 hours, locked in and without any breaks. Children who fell asleep during work were lashed awake by a whip. Children were also beaten. Thousands of children were mangled by factory machines that left them disfigured or disabled for life without any compensation. These working conditions and this kind of treatment continued to spread to the New World under British control. The white freights were transported across the Atlantic on crossings that took 9 to 12 weeks of travel. They were cramped below the deck of the ship and prone to experience outbreaks of contagious diseases, which often resulted in the loss of half of the human cargo. Also, before leaving the port of England, they were given food rations that were supposed to last for the entire journey. Because the amount of food issue was usually inadequate, 
Many starve to death before reaching their destination. And if a person died halfway across the ocean, the surviving family members had to pay the fare of the deceased, including their own fare. Usually these travelers started their journey with sufficient funds to pay their way, only to be overcharged when they arrive, thereby causing them to owe more money and face a longer time serving their new masters. As soon as they arrived at their destinations, whites were auctioned on the auction block with children, men, and women separated from each other. Governor Horatio Sharp was appointed by the King of England in 1754 as the Royal Commander-in-Chief of all British forces and Commander of Colonial Forces for the protection of Virginia and the adjoining colonies. This information came from letters from America and London in the year of 1792. Governor Sharp of the Maryland Colony compared the property interest of the planters and their white slaves with the estate of an English farmer consisting of a multitude of cattle. This statement of the governor helps you to understand the mindset of the rich and powerful in the early days of the British colonies. The Revolutionary War was an astounding occurrence in a world still dominated by kings. It established the first important republic since Rome in the middle of what at the time was a wilderness far from Europe. The time is near at hand which must determine whether Americans are to be free men or slaves, said General George Washington. And it was at this time that the American Revolution began in April of 1775. When the initial battles in the Revolutionary War broke out, few colonists wanted complete independence from Great Britain. Those who did not want it were considered to be radical. By the middle of 1776, though, many more colonists had come to think it was a good idea because of growing hostility against Britain and the spread of revolutionary concepts among the colonies. By the Treaty of Paris that ended the war in 1783, the colonies had won their independence. While no one event could be pointed to as the actual cause of the revolution, the war began as a disagreement over the way in which Great Britain treated the colonies versus the way the colonies felt that they should be treated. Americans felt they deserved all the rights of Englishmen. The British, on the other hand, felt that the colonists were created to be used in the way that best suited the Crown and Parliament. This conflict, symbolized by one of the rallying cries of the American Revolution, no taxation without representation. It was a war that the British could have easily avoided had King George and his advisors been willing to show the least flexibility. Many in Britain objected to the war and a minority of Americans wanted independence at the time 
the war began. It was also a war that the American colonists won by the slimmest of margins against the most powerful country in the world. A less well-chronicled aspect of the war was the extent to which it was a class conflict, which led by the land-owning affluent class. It was fought by common farmers who fired the first shot heard round the world. And these first shots were fired by backwoodsmen and the poor of early American towns and villages. For America to be the country it is today, we have had to fight a lot of wars. Many times over, our country did the right thing, and because of that, America has evolved into the greatest nation on earth. However, history records that American leaders have made some very bad mistakes in the past. To name just a few, taking the Native American land by force without giving them any compensation for it. History tells us how our governments in Washington made treaties with the Indians and then broke those treaties time after time. Not only did this country not pay for the land they took, but in the process, there were times that it literally massacred men, women, and children. Many colonial American jurisdictions established debtors' prisons using the same models used in Great Britain. James Wilson, a signatory to the Declaration of Independence, spent some time in a debtors' prison while still serving as an Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Fellow signatory Robert Morris spent three years from 1798 to 1801 in the Walnut Street Debtors' Prison in Washington, D.C., often receiving visits from his good friend, George Washington. Henry Lee III, also known as Light Horse Harry Lee, was an early American patriot who served as the Knight Governor of Virginia and as the Virginia representative to the United States Congress. During the American Revolution, Lee served as a cavalry officer in the Continental Army and earned the nickname Light Horse Harry. Lee was the father of Confederate General Robert E. Lee and was imprisoned for debt between 1808 and 1809. Debtors' prisons were prevalent throughout the United States up until the mid-1800s. Economic hardships following the War of 1812 with Great Britain helped swell prison populations with simple debtors. This resulted in significant attention being given to the plights of the poor and most independent, jailed under the widespread practice, possibly for the first time.
Increasing disfavor over debtors' prisons, along with the advent and early development of the United States bankruptcy laws, led states to begin restricting imprisonment for most civil debts. At that time, growing use of the poorhouse and poor farm were also seen as institutional alternatives for debtors' prisons. The United States eliminated the imprisonment of debtors under federal law in 1833, leaving the practice of debtors' prisons to states. While today the United States no longer has brick-and-mortar debtors' prisons, it has debtors' prisons of private debts, however. A large portion of our nation is carrying a very, very heavy debt load with payments coming due early each month, making it impossible for them to escape the biblical truth. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is the slave of the lender. It took two major wars, the Revolutionary War with England and the Civil War, to rid this country of slavery forever on December 6, 1865. And it was at eight months after the end of the Civil War, the United States adopted the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, which outlawed the practice of slavery. In closing, I would like to thank everyone for listening to Plymouth Rock, American History Revealed. I'm Barack Obama, and I approve this message. The only people who don't want to disclose the truth 
or people with something to hide. Welcome. You have now entered the Thailand zone. The mind is like a parachute. It can only work if it's open. A word of caution. What you discover here today is the shocking truth that the CIA created Barack Obama. Yes, Barack Obama is really Prince Aduya Day of Thailand. The truth is stranger than fiction. Wake up America before it is too late. A simple DNA test will expose the fact that Barack Obama is a fraud. Maybe I'm not an American citizen, and some people said, ah, he has a forged birth certificate. Well, first of all, um, uh, it's true, I'm not an American. I mean, I, I was not born in Hawaii. I wasn't born in the United States of America. Uh, I come from Kenya. And so I think people saw my election as, uh, as proof, as testimony that Iraq has led by example. When we took our trip to Africa and visited his home country in Kenya, uh, we took a public HIV test. Question, um, Obama, President-elect Obama's birthplace over in Kenya, is that going to be a national uh, spot to go visit where he was born? It's um, already uh, an attraction. Uh, oh, okay. His, his, his uh, paternal grandmother mm -hmm. is still alive. and. Uh, uh, but his, his birthplace, they'll, be, they'll put up a marker there? It's inside of the government. It's already well-known. Uh, okay. yeah. 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 Well, listen, sir, thank you very much for the time. We just wanted to check in, uh, uh, given the uh, proceedings that have occurred. Uh, one of the, as you say, a great historical moment. And thank you, uh, Your Excellency, for your time. Well, thank you so very much, guys, for your excitement and uh, for congratulating us. Absolutely. Well, thank and you. Thank you very much. You have a nice day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Mike, he basically admitted that President-elect Obama was born there. Yes, he did. That's, that's what I was asking him. Remember the Controversy yeah, about I do about Hawaii and, uh, and 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 whether he naturalized or not or Can what we, happened. I mean that's a fact. He I just, no, you're gonna have to replay it because I, I didn't. I asked if there's gonna be thing. a marker for, for where his, he was the born. Fact that he was born there, and I said president-elect, not to confuse with his dad. And he said absolutely, there's already plans. Right, so there you go. So that means we're gonna have to remove his. Uh, we're gonna have <laughs> he to. His excellency. We're gonna have to undo you, it. I'm not gonna argue with his excellency. If he I says, wouldn't. If he says it's President elect Obama was was born in Kenya, he was born in Kenya. It's disrespectful to argue. Well, there have been about 17 cases nationwide over Barack Obama's birth certificate. Now, a birth certificate costs between ten and fifteen dollars to get a copy of it. So for less than $400. Barack Obama could have made 17 copies of his original birth certificate and had them sent to each of these courts by express mail. Instead, this highly educated man has spent to date $800,000 on legal fees to prevent his birth certificate from becoming public. Now do you think Barack Obama might have something to hide?
you go. Hmm. Um, back to Susan Daniels, the work that she did revealing that Obama's Social Security number, the one he uses most often, was issued out of Connecticut between 77 and 79 when he was a teenager in Hawaii, um, obviously proving um, that it's a fraudulent Social Security number and not his. I was trying to think, how can I get the government to acknowledge that this is a fraudulent Social Security number? And so I was trying to think of how could I get in through the back door somehow to get them to confirm this. And I decided that I was going to register with the government-run E-Verify system, which is for employers to determine whether or not their employees are eligible to work in the United States of America. And employers are required by law as of 1986 to do this. Employees have to fill out an I-9 form attesting to their citizenship or, or work status, and employers have to follow it up and verify if it's true. So I decided that I was one of Barack Obama's employers and that I had a legal obligation to determine whether or not he was eligible to work here. So uh, I registered with E-Verify, and on August 17, 2011, I ran Barack Obama's data into the system, and it came back uh, flagged most likely as fraudulent. That's right. And you're using the the Social Security number that appears on his uh, Selective Service registration. Yes, and it also appears on last year's tax return filing, um, uh, which is posted on the White House uh, website. Yeah, by the way, the, the, the Magdaddy's Social Security number is, is fraudulent Social Security number. I love to give this out because I want the FBI just to just cringe. Mm-hmm. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. Yes. I agree. Uh, the MacDaddy's fraudulent Social Security number zero four two six eight four four two five. Again, uh, the fraudulent Social Security number of the criminal in the White House, Barry Satoro, who goes by the alias Barack Hussein Obama, who could possibly be uh, Harrison J. Bonnell. The number he's using is 042-684425. Homeland Security says if you know of anything suspicious, you should say something. I just said it. The President of the United States is using a fraudulent Social Security number. Uh, So Janet Napolitano, I'm I'm reporting this on the air right now. Uh, You're Secretary of Homeland Security. I hope you do something about this.
Wake up all the doctors, make the old people well. They're the ones who suffer and who catch all the hair. But they don't have so very long before their judgment day. So won't you make them happy before they pass away? Wake up all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out, they do it every time. The world won't get no better if we're just. Let it be. The world won't get no better. We gotta change it, just you and me.
finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whatever and whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Because God is going to find you. He's going to find you. Even if you hide under the rock, He's going to find you. And He's going to send His light on you. So what are you going to do when God sends His angels out to find you? This is the question I ask of you. Free at last, free at last, thanks.
Truth.